exactly 500 years ago, by the end of this month, a German monk named Martin walked to his local church building with a list of 95 ways in which he felt the Roman church, which was the kind of only real denomination in Europe in those times, were deceiving the people of Europe, and he nailed it onto a door of that church building. And that moment is often regarded as the spark of the Reformation. It spread throughout Europe and impacted the whole world. It continued God's mission in a new and fresh and dynamic way. Because at that time, on the surface, it would appear as if Christianity was in terminal decline. Christianity was virtually extinct in Asia and Africa, where it had been. And it was critically endangered in Europe through, not least, the corruption, the compromise of the church, the official church at that time. But also, particularly over the last, the previous hundred years, the conquests of Islam that had then taken Constantinople, the once great Christian city, and turned it into their new Islamic capital. It, it appeared as if, on the surface, that Europe was going to turn Muslim. Maybe echoed at times in how we feel about Europe today. But God's mission of bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to all nations continued. The Reformation, of course, led to the re-evangelization of Europe. It led to a, an explosion of mission across all the continents. And it affected every area of life. It affected the arts. You had Bach and others writing beautiful music to kind of reflect something of the glory of God. It led to all sorts of social justice and changes even in the law through people like William Wilberforce and the uh, abolition of slavery. It led to reforms such as uh, the outlawing of prostitution for young girls and for boys being put into chimneys as chimney sweeps. It led to all sorts of philanthropic contributions to the poor for housing, education and their diets, all from this reformation. Of course, there are other factors. You can't just say nailing 95 things to a door 500 years ago led to all that, but it was the spark. It was the spark. And it was explosive, partly because of new inventions. They'd invented the printing press. And so somebody locally, to Martin the monk, uh, printed up his 95 things and sent them out. And it was spread like wildfire throughout Europe. And of course, God was doing things in the hearts of other people across the continent who were similarly getting these kind of fresh revelations again of old truths lost. And as we get close to the half-millennial anniversary of the 31st of October, 1517, I think what's interesting is to see what happened. What, what did God do in the heart of this monk Martin? Martin Luther was his name. What was God doing? What sparked in him before it came, made an outward appearance, if you like? You see, Martin had survived a lightning bolt. It landed quite close to him. But he lived. 
But he lived and was affected by it. He was full and gripped by fear. Fear that he was going to die, but also knowing he would meet his maker, he was fearful of the most holy judge, our Lord and our God. And so he vowed in that moment of just avoiding death through lightning bolt to become a monk. That was his way of saying, I want to, I want to earn God's favor. I want to do everything I can so that when I'm before my maker, he may look favorably upon, upon me. And, but the, what he found was the more devout he became, the more disciplined he was in the monkey kind of ways, the more, the more tormented was his soul. The more he realized he was dirty in his inner being, the more he realized that he, he, he was still distant from God. He ended up disliking God more and more, despite, despite all his devotion. But thankfully, it led him to grapple with Scripture. And there was one particular verse that he was led to, and he just, he was wrestling with this. He was, he was thrown by it, and he wouldn't let it go. Romans 1 verse 17 says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's quoting Habakkuk 2. Martin later wrote, about this verse. I was beside myself. My, co- my conscience was so violently upset and I ceaselessly puzzled over this passage from St. Paul in the ardent desire to know what Paul meant by it. And it was at this point that God in his mercy and grace by the power of the Holy Spirit broke in and gave him revelation of this one verse. This is what Martin wrote. I began to understand that the justice or righteousness of God, because the word could be translated either way, justice or righteousness of God, here means the righteousness which God gives and by which the righteous lives if he has faith. That was it. He got it. Martin said this. So the meaning of the phrase is that the gospel reveals to us the righteousness of God But this is the passive righteousness by which God, in his mercy, justifies us by means of faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin said, immediately I felt reborn. I seemed to have entered the broad gates of paradise itself. Formerly, I had detested the term, the righteousness of God, but now I loved and cherished so sweet a saying. It was that spark revealed by God, by someone who was seriously grappling with a passage of Scripture that led to the rediscovery of a lost truth. This is how Martin later summarized it, that sinners are attractive because they are loved. I've been singing it this morning. Not that they are loved because they are attractive. That was his summary of the revelation God brought to him that caused him to be reborn in his spirit because faith had arisen and he received the righteousness of God as a gift, as it it was meant. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. And as a result, the mission, if you like, of God, of taking that message, the message of God's love to the world spread and continued around the world. So let's read then 
about Paul in Berea. We're in Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 10. If you like, this is our next step in our Mission Continued preaching series as we're following Paul around on his journeys, and we're stopping off for a few verses in the middle of chapter 17. They've been in Thessalonica. They've had to leave, and this is where we pick it up. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was proclaiming the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then let, left, him with, uh, sorry, left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Berea is just about 50 miles from Thessalonica, uh, where Paul and Silas, it would appear, had to leave under the cover of darkness. They'd secured uh, their host, Jason, if you remember from last week, his release from prison. And uh, they also, I think, preserved the continuation of the church and uh, ensured its legality so that it was able to carry on. Berea was a less significant city than Thessalonica and the other ones that seemed to be uh, targeted on this particular journey of Paul, but maybe it was just the next obvious place to go to. But the thing I want to home in on, as we were singing earlier from verse 11, thank you Claire, um, is this verse about the noble character of the Bereans. Because I think Luke has been very deliberate in providing a bit of commentary on what he found there. I think actually the Holy Spirit is behind it, that he's written that extra bit of adjective, if you like, that description for our benefit. He's left the historic account and added a little bit himself. And I think the best moments are those in the Bible where it comments itself on what it's saying. It's just such a real easy hint for us that the Holy Spirit wants us to get it. So it says the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for a reason. For what? They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. You see, there are other moments in scripture when it comments on itself. Even Jesus did this as he went around. He, he commented on, on, a, on a widow who was putting in just two pence, if you like, into the offering uh, compared to someone else who's giving loads. He said, look, look what she's done. She's given more than any other, anybody else. It alerts us, doesn't it? On another occasion, Jesus uh, commented on the woman who was pouring out perfume all over him. And he said, she, what she's done is a beautiful thing. And it's important we make a note of that. Well, again, there's another one of those moments where Luke is now saying, this is, these are of more noble character. So let's take a note of this. I think the Holy Spirit is saying, look, this is a quality worth emulating. It's worth copying. It's worth imitating something of what they had there. I believe God wants you and me to respond like they did. He wants us as a church to be those that respond to the gospel with great eagerness and with a passion for examining his word, the Bible. 
That's what the Bereans did, and it, and it led to a vibrant church being planted that played a significant role in the whole spread of the gospel throughout the region. We find out later that one of their number went on to join Paul on his team, so Peter, in Acts 20 and Romans 16. So clearly there was a vibrant church established very quickly. I know Timothy and Silas stayed a little bit longer to lay some foundations, but they quickly became a very robust and outward-facing church. And I think that is also how Martin Luther responded, bringing it to full circle. It was his humble and prayerful grappling of a Bible verse and possibly his great eagerness of using a nail to vandalize the door of a church building with his 95 insights that led to a change in the expression of Christianity. That led to the advance of the gospel and the mission of God both locally in that German-speaking part of the world, because Martin went on to translate the Bible into the German language, and throughout the rest of Europe and beyond. So nobility then. You see, nobility in God's eyes isn't something we inherit by, by our, from our parents as a hereditary title, if you like, like Lord and Lady or Duke and Duchess. Nobility actually doesn't come from there. Nobility doesn't come from grand job titles, manager, uh, executive, director, elder. It doesn't come from there. It doesn't even come from qualifications, which might put letters at the beginning and the end of your name, but isn't the nobility that God is talking about. It's character. And these are the characteristics that are noble, as God endorses. Gospel enthusiasm and Bible examination. Do those describe you? Do they describe me? I trust so, increasingly. Let's look at enthusiasm. You know, I was encouraged recently uh, when God spoke to me through a verse about Titus. Now, Titus was one of Paul's mates who came along on team with him a bit later on. And we read about him in 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul is, is just trying to commend him to the church that Titus is going to. And he says this, Titus is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And I was reading that one day and pondering over those verses and God in his grace broke out into my life in that moment and just shown, showed me one of my spiritual gifts. I love those moments. Because I, I guess I, I recognize I'm a, I'm a bit of a jack of a few trades. I can do this a little bit and that a little bit. I can just about hold key when I sing and, you know, I can lead a bit and administrate a bit and teach a little bit. But God showed me that enthusiasm was a spiritual gift. And for me, that just released me to embrace it all the more. You might think that I'm a little bit enthusiastic. Maybe I am a little bit at times. If I'm going to lead worship, it's going to have a little bit of enthusiasm in there, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, not much else, but it'll have a bit of that. If you see me in a prayer meeting, it won't take long before there's a bit of enthusiasm coming over from the corner. And even when I'm preaching to you and trying to be, you know, measured, uh, the enthusiasm... I'm sure some of you are more enthusiastic than me, but relative to my other spiritual gifts, it's just a little bit warmer. And God was showing to me that Titus had that gift. He was enthusiastic and showed initiative and was a blessing to churches as a result. So if that's your gift, then hallelujah. But I think actually the Spirit has got something for all of us here. We want to be a Spirit-filled church, don't we? Then we need to embrace all that the Spirit has for us. And I think part of that, it doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Is enthusiasm. 
you know, uh, thinking about mission and all the different motivations to mission. We did a series on mission last year. We did a series on mission the year before. We're here again doing a series on how much more can we look at on the theme of mission? How, what other motivating lever can we try and pull here to try and... But I'll tell you, for me, the motivation that springs out of an eagerness and an enthusiasm for God and his truth is probably going to have the biggest impact and the, through my life than any other motivation. And maybe that's the same for you. You see, if we're going to have a strong and growing culture of mission, as we've stated in our vision statement, then possibly more than anything, I, and maybe some of you, need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit's enthusiasm. It needs to grip us. It needs to pour out of us. You know, I recognize that in our culture, uh, as Brits, I know not all of you are Brits. Some of you are shaped by other national cultures, of course, and we value that. Maybe you can help us with this. I think in our culture, some of the enthusiasm has been knocked out of us. Our faith is expected in our nation to be a private thing, to not affect our behavior or our opinions, and definitely not our public life. Start wondering, is it, is it possible to, to be a leader in a council and an enthusiastic Christian? Our culture seems to be kind of playing that down. We're fearful, perhaps, as a church, as church generally in this nation. Oh, we might get labeled, not just odd, for being a bit enthusiastic about the Bible, but fanatical, fundamentalist. Those kind of words get used, don't they, for anyone who shows any keenness religiously. And we need to be careful. We need to watch for that. It's a spiritual battle for us across this nation, I believe. It's uh, something of a cultural stronghold that maybe still remains in us, even though we've come to Christ, that we need to break and see broken in Christ. I think if we had some more of our uh, people from other nations here today, oh, no, there are some, aren't there? Who, who here uh, identifies with a different nationality than British or English? Uh, there's a few, there's a few, there's a few, there's a few around. I think the other week where we kind of did a straw poll, there was quite a number, actually. So I was going to get you to give a big amen to this. Do you think that us Brits, even the Christian ones, have a stronghold to break over enthusiasm and let it, let it out a little bit? Amen, I think there's a few. Thank you. Amen. Amen. I think, I think there's a bit of that for us. They call it the British stiff upper lip. They call it stoicism. It's referred to as private faith. All these things are constraining us, and we need to break out of them. And there was a warning given to a church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, which I think is relevant to the Western church and maybe to us. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Speaking right into us, into our culture as Christians, we're to repent, we're to be earnest, we're to be eager. We're to be enthusiastic again. We're to eat with Jesus. We were encouraged to do that a couple of weeks ago prophetically. We're to feast on him and in him. We're to open the door. We're to let the Holy Spirit in. We're to grow in these things. 
And I really want this time, this season, this term to be about more of the spirit in our lives. Fling wide the door of our lives, the, the feasting on our God. And uh, of course, when you're in Acts, you don't, it doesn't take you long before you're, you're reminded that we need more of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be opportunity at the end of this meeting for you to just reach out again. Lord, give me enthusiasm. <laughs> give me with more of your passion. And we've got a special weekend, 17th and 18th and 19th of November, which we're going to uh, label Times of Refreshing. There's going to be opportunity for the youth on a Friday night, on a Saturday for any of us, over two sessions, morning and afternoon, and again on a Sunday, just to be open again. Holy Spirit, let's just give some time to it. Come and excite us again in the things of God. So make a note of that time. You see, I think for some of us, we don't need more tools or techniques or answers to tough questions to help us with mission. They are helpful, and remembering some of that is useful, but I think I need, and maybe you do too, just some more enthusiasm leakage. We just need to leak a little bit more. Because I recognize in many of you, there is, it's there. Like it's in me, it's there. For me, it's, it gets expressed here. I can express it in worship. I can express it in prayer. But it needs to be out there. It needs to be amongst the people. It means to be, you know, with our friends and our family and our colleagues and our clients and our suppliers. It just needs to bubble out and leak a little bit. I'm not, I'm not going to be insensitive. I, don't, I think for most of us, there's not a danger of being insensitive, is there? Really. If anything, we just need a little bit more of the leakage of enthusiasm. And this is about, under, this is about us understanding more of the gospel and receiving more of the spirit. It's, it's not something we have to muster up and find. See, naturally, I'm a timid, shy, don't say boo to a goose person. I'm a back row Christian on my own. I really, really am. No disrespect to the back row. It took me years to pray out loud in a group. It took me years to raise my trembling hands in worship. And it wasn't that God set my tongue free and set my hands free. No, he set me free. Like we've been singing. He set me free from eternal death into eternal life. He set me free from a destiny of hell to a destiny of heaven. He set me free from a life of bondage to Satan to a life that's part of the family of God. He set me free. He set me free from a life of, of, of sinful habits and not being able to break free into a life of holiness and righteousness. And the more he's, I've understood that through grappling with Scripture and being open to the Spirit, the more that revelation has come. It's that I've become free. But I need to be more free and more enthusiastic like you do too in more areas. And then as we leak enthusiasm in our conversations and with our neighbours, it will just bubble out. And people will spot something in us. Let's look at Bible examination. The Reformation, the re-evangelization of Europe, and the barrier to Islam and the containing of it, the continuation of God's mission around the world came as Christians went back to the book. It did. That is the story of the Reformation. And we need it again, particularly across the Western church. The Reformation took hold because this book was translated, not just in the Latin, which was what people had, not that they could understand it, most of them, but it was translated into all the mother tongues of the European languages at the time. All the contemporary languages suddenly got to read this stuff, and they did, and they believed it, and God broke in. 
You know, us English speakers, we're eternally grateful to people like William Tyndale, the brilliant linguist who first wrote an English translation of the Bible. But you know what? He had to do it in Germany because it was against the law to own or to read an English translation in this nation. On punishment of death. No wonder he went to Germany to write the English Bible. 16,000 copies were smuggled in across the border into this nation. And it was devoured. Red, I mean. <laughs> in 1535, Tyndale was caught. He was officially strangled and burned to death near Brussels. And as he was dying, he prayed this, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And two years later, King Henry VIII changed the law that English Bibles were allowed. We take these things for granted, don't we? So easily. You see, the truth revealed, this is what I want to get into you this morning, the truth revealed to you through a snippet, through a, through a window, through a verse in the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, direct, as you examine the scripture, is worth more than a hundred sermons. Where it comes. Sermons are valuable, I trust. And this is not a, a guilt-induced rah-rah, come on, read the Bible every day in a year kind of thing, although that's helpful, but this is an invitation. Come and feast on his goodness. This is less about, oh, how much are you reading? How, what, what are you gorging yourself on in the quantity of scripture? This is more about savor. Savor the tastes. Take the quality into your system. Examine the scripture daily is the noble trait that is being endorsed here by the Holy Spirit, by the way. The Bible uses words like this, words like think, think over what I say, said Paul to his disciple, and God will give you understanding. Think over these words and God will break in and help you. The Bible uses words like this, meditate, meditate on the book of the law day and night. This was top number one instruction to Joshua as, he, as, a, as a means to his success. God had commissioned him to do the most awesome leadership responsibility any of us would ever have. And he said, number one, Joshua, meditate on this thing. Day and night, take it in. Take the goodness of it in. Savor it for yourself. Richly dwell. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, on the message of Christ. On the message of Christ. Richly dwell on it. It will, it will radically transform your worship life if you read on that verse. I think we need a bit of that. Yeah, we need the spiritual gifts. Where do they come from? They come from the Spirit and they come from the Word. Where are we? Are we in the Word? Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning? It's there, bubbling out in our worship. Every Christmas, my granddad used to get a calendar uh, it was called the Apples of Gold calendar. I don't know if it's still around or ever anybody remembers it. And you tear off each day, and there'll be a Bible verse underneath, the, the verse of the day, if you like. 365 bits of paper deep, this thing was, at the beginning of the year. And, you'd kind of, and I saw it. He did it every day. Took it off. Got a word uh, from just a, a verse. You know, you won't have known me in this era, but for 20 years, and at times with a pressured job, a growing family, church responsibilities. I was a chair of governors of a school for a time. I learned not to despise 10 minutes in prayerfully thinking through a small passage of scripture every day. That's where it's learned. I learned in those tough years 
slowing there. Must, might be waiting for the future, the next chapter, which it looks so much easier. And no, it's in now. It's in the now. And we learn to just find the 10 minutes, just get up 10 minutes earlier, just use that 10 minutes on the bus or on the train, just grab it, wherever it is, to just feed on the word of God, prayerfully, humbly come before him. And those short Bible passages, well, I'm not getting through the quantity, but they'll become life to you. They'll be apples of gold in settings of silver to finish the proverb. You see, the Bible is the best discipleship tool we've got. In Berea, you see, the apostolic team, Paul and co., they weren't around for long, but they left a robust church plant that went on to flourish, largely because they quickly became self-feeders on the Word of God. Quickly. They, and like, like them, we don't need any more apostolic attention than we've already got. Where are the apostles coming through our church meetings? We don't need any more of that. We don't need better leaders. You might think, yes, we do. <laughs> we need to be, each of us, better Bible examiners, self-feeders on the verses of, these, uh, of our Lord. Peter says this in 1 Peter, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord of God is good. Crave it. Crave it like milk. It says in the Psalms, your words, Lord, are flawless. They're like silver, purified in, cru in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Psalm 19, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. What's it talking about? It's talking about this and the words in it. So let's learn to feast. Let's feast on the word of God ourselves. Let's not just rely solely on the morsels that are spoon-fed to us from others, however well-processed and manufactured they may be. You see, the Bible is full of surprises, things that should make you stop and think, things that make you go, hold on a minute, but I thought God was like that. Oh, how do the two things meet? And it's meant to make you stop and think, hold on a minute, well, God was dealing with man that way there, but that way there. How do we marry these things to get together? If, if you don't stumble over the words and come to a point when you're reading which says, hold on a minute, then I, I'd suggest to you perhaps it's not going in. Because there's so much there that should make you stop and think. And I've got a little bit of a, uh, an example for you to take away. A bit of homework, if you like. Uh, you can come ready to life group, perhaps, uh, having done some of this. But let me give you an example. The first verse here uh, in uh, 17.10 says that Paul and Silas went to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That's interesting. I remember somebody saying that last week. Ah, and I remember someone, somebody saying something similar the week before. In fact, for every location that Paul's gone to and does go to, he seems to go to the synagogue first. That's interesting. And Paul, sorry, Luke has even made a note of it so you don't miss it. Again, he's added a bit of commentary. Back in verse 2 of chapter 17, he said they went to the synagogue as was their custom. This was a pattern. We're meant to see it. Luke's made sure we don't miss it. This was their Norm. Even in Philippi, where he went to the place of prayer, found Lydia, that was the equivalent of the synagogue when there wasn't a synagogue. And as we go on, we'll see Paul's strategy continues. He has other elements to his strategy, as we'll see when we get to Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. But in the three places he's been to so far, he hasn't had time to get to stage two, if you like. But stage one is still consistent. Why is that? 
particularly because some of you remember, Paul considered himself an apostle to the Gentiles. Mm. And he's going to the Jews at the synagogue. I just would love you to grapple with that, see what revelation the Spirit will give to you. Because it's important, if we're going to grow as a church on mission, that we, we adopt biblical strategy. If we're going to, as we've stated, uh, see another congregation started at some point, we're going to need to follow God's strategy as laid out in the examples in our Bibles. It would be good for us to grapple with these things. But as well as being the best discipleship tool, the Bible is the best evangelistic tool that you have. I was really stirred when Oscar and Bibi from Mexico came with us, came to us a few weeks back. And alongside all the social action projects they were doing, which were very inspiring, they did say they gave away thousands, I think they said, of Bibles to all those that they were engaging with. Our Just Looking course that um, Quincy has announced again this morning, starts on Thursday, is simply a way of helping people to just look at the Gospel of Luke and see what it says. Because in there, in the Gospel of Luke, is enough for people to come to faith. In my um, man bag, I'm going to get my man bag, because I like my man bag. Do you like my man bag? It's quite new. In my man bag, which I know my wife thinks I carry around far too often. She thinks it's at my side more than she is. Um, I've been carrying around a Why Jesus booklet. I just felt it was something that I can do, that God's put on my heart, so that I don't just carry it around. I, I find someone I can give it to, you know, in conversation, someone that God highlights as I go. And I say, yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I believe that God wants you to read that. And uh, I felt God's, in preparation for this morning, say to me, well, however good why Jesus is, and it is good, do you believe, Tim, that my word is the best evangelistic tool there is? Ah, yes, I do. So the challenge I've got for myself, and I invite you to join me on it, if you will, is to carry around a Luke's gospel, a portion of the Bible. I've got 50 over there on your way out. Feel free to take one and give it to someone as God prompts you to do so. And let's see what God will do. It might spark a conversation then and there. It may lay some groundwork for future conversations as they go away and read it. Some of you have heard of the uh, armour of God in Ephesians chapter 6. So just end with this. I haven't got time to look into all of it, but we often refer to the armour of God. And my summary of the armour of God is this, that it's about knowing the truth and using the truth. Three bits of armour women are put on, aren't we? The belt of truth. You see, we're meant to be surrounded by the full counsel of God, the fullness of God's word. We're meant to get familiar with it. We're meant to put on the breastplate of righteousness, that our, our emotions know the truth that we are righteous in Christ. As Martin worked out, the monk we're meant to put on the helmet of salvation. We're meant to understand the gospel in our minds. And then we're strong. These are things we have to put on, stay on. They're with us all the time. The truth, knowing the truth. It's important we know the truth. We get it from God as we ponder, as we ask his spirit to reveal. And we're to pick up three bits of armor, aren't we? These are our attacking weapons, if you like. These are what we work with in our spiritual battles, both in our own discipleship and maturity and in the battle of bringing many nations to Christ. And what are we meant to do? We're meant to, for example, pick up the shield of faith. This, is, this helps the army advance, by the way. It's not just a defense tool. The Roman armies advanced en masse in formation because they had the shield. 
And we can only have the shield of faith and use it in a moment in time if we know the truth. And then we use it against, you know, the enemy in our mind. Oh, thank you. Loving that. And also, not, not in an aggressive way, but in the people we meet. This is faith. This is truth. Yeah, this is truth. It's gentle. I know it's got battle language, but we're battling things up there, not people. And, and we're meant to have the, the shoes of the gospel of peace, aren't we? You see, the Roman military hardware of the day had studs in their boots. Gave them a great advantage in battle. No one else had them. Gave them agility in the gospel of peace. So they could use the gospel of peace in the moment. We need to be quick-footed, slight-footed. We need to be mobile because we know the truth and we're going to use it. We're going to use it here in the battle for our mind. We're going to use it there as we testify to something about God to people we know. And we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, of course, which is the truth. Again, using the truth. Using the truth. No to that, thank you, evil one. And here, have a bit of truth. God bless you. <laughs> God loves you. Whatever it is. So we need to know the truth. We need to use the truth. There we go. Noble character. Noble character could describe you and me as it did describe the Bereans and Monk Martin. God wants you and me to be both gospel enthusiasts and Bible examiners. You see, one without the other leads to either a frothy Christianity with no substance, all enthusiasm but nothing there really. Don't want that. Or it leads to a dry, private, inward-focused, ineffective faith. We're just kind of studying the book just for its sake. But there's nothing of life there. But together, I think it will lead to an unstoppable continuation of God's mission in our lives and in the lives around us and in the nations of the world. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand together?